0: Then John gave this testimony I saw the Spirit come down from heaven as a dove and remain on him. And I myself did not know him, but the one who sent me to baptize with water told me, The man on whom you see the Spirit come down and remain is the one who will baptize with the Holy Spirit. I have seen and I testify that this is God's chosen one. Our second reading is John chapter 16. Verses 12 to 15, and that's on page 1084, 1084. I have much more to say to you, more than you can now bear. But when he, the Spirit of truth, comes, he will guide you into all the truth. He will not speak on his own, He will speak only what he hears and he will tell you what is yet to come. He will glorify me because it is from me that he will receive what he will make known to you. All that belongs to the Father is mine. That is why I said the Spirit will receive from me what he will make known to you. Our final reading is from John chapter 20, verses 19 23, on page 1089. Jesus appears to his disciples. On the evening of that first day of the week, when the disciples were together, with the doors locked for fear of the Jewish leaders, Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. After he said this, he showed them his hands and side.
1: Thank you, Scott. I'd like to thank Steve for his invitation and all of you for your welcome. It's a joy for me and Carolyn to be amongst a number of old friends and uh, amongst all of you. Thank you very much indeed. It's a particular joy to be here on what is obviously a very happy family occasion for Ruby and Rory and uh, their family. I don't know them, but it's a, a real privilege and a joy to be with them. Um, for that. Uh, I, I'm going to preach a slightly odd sermon. Um, I suppose I often preach odd sermons, but this is uh, odd in a particular way. I've been asked to, 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 to preach, as Steve said, a sort of um, trying to pull together the, 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 the teaching that we get in, in, in John's Gospel, particularly um, chapters 14 to 16 of John's Gospel about the Holy Spirit. So before I do that, shall we pray? and pray for God's uh, help. God, our Father, we thank you uh, for the Lord Jesus, and we thank you for the Holy Spirit. And we pray that as we consider him the Holy Spirit now, you would, uh, that, that, that he would be deeply at work in our hearts and minds and consciences and wills. For Jesus' sake, amen. Well, my friends, when you look around, what do you see? There's all sorts of outward things we immediately notice when we look around. So to take one example, we immediately make some kind of judgment of age. Sometimes we get it wrong. I, uh, I know two or three um, very attractive young women who would turned 30 and were flattered to be asked for evidence of age when they were um, trying to buy a bottle of wine. Uh, I had the opposite experience soon after I turned 60. It was the first time I think I'd asked for a reduced-price ticket for some exhibition. And the, um, the attendant who was um, selling the tickets didn't question me at all. <laughs> she just said, yes, of course, you know, and gave me the reduced price and waved me through. I was expecting her to say, no, 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 you're not serious. Please, can I see your passport? There are all manner of outward things we immediately notice about one another. But the one thing we can't do is to see what's going on inside, deeply inside. Sometimes you get a nice surprise. You find that something's been going on inside somebody, and you discover later something about it, and it's a nice surprise. Sometimes you get sad surprises. Where you discover that something's been going on uh, in, inside that wasn't what you'd hoped or what had seemed. And our subject this morning, God the Holy Spirit, concerns the most deeply inward of all possible inwardness, something deeply inside. That, that inside <coughs> some men and women and children, God the Holy Spirit, The third person of the Trinity, God Himself, uh, God the Holy Spirit, dwells in the deepest of all inwardnesses in some and not in others. And that's the most significant one, much more significant than all the things that we notice. Today is, as we know, Pentecost Sunday. We make a tremendous farce of Christmas. Uh, we make a fuss, quite rightly, of Good Friday and Easter Sunday. We generally ignore Ascension Day, partly because it's on a Thursday, although that's a pity that we ignore it. But uh, today we remember the outpouring of the Holy Spirit of God on the Church of Christ. Now, as I say, I've been asked to try to pull strands together from John's Gospel, and I'm not quite sure how best to do this, but I'll tell you what I'm going to try to, to, to do. I'm going to take for my text, really, as a, as a kind of anchor, uh, a verse from the second of the two readings that Scott uh, read to us, from John 16, verse uh, 14, where Jesus says, He, the Holy Spirit, will glorify me. Jesus says, He's going to cause me, Jesus, to shine out. He's going to glorify me because it's from me that he'll receive what he'll make known to you. And then Jesus goes on to say, all that belongs to the Father is mine. That's why I said the Spirit will receive from me what he'll make known to you. And I want to take that, John 16 verses 14 and 15, as my starting point. We will dot around in John's Gospel. If you like turning pages quickly, you you can follow all the, the verses I'm going to refer to are on the outline at the back of the service sheet, so you can take them away and look, look them up later. And it might be less confusing if you just look them up later rather than try to look them up as we, as we go through. <coughs> but I'm going to try to pull things together. Now, I want to do it like this. I want to say first, I, wa- I want to take that, that, that thing that Jesus says, all that belongs to the Father is mine. And I want us to start not thinking about the Holy Spirit at all, but to start by thinking about what is perhaps the biggest theme of John's Gospel, which is that there is a God who is Father, who is good, who is love, who is unchanging, who is creator, who is invisible but real, and that Jesus made him known tremendously a theme in John's gospel. You get it right near the beginning in some of the opening verses of the gospel, where we read that no one has ever seen God. It's a problem, isn't it? Nobody's ever seen God, but the one and only Son, who is himself God and is in the closest relationship with the Father, has made him known. Here is Jesus the Son, the eternal Son of God, who lives in the in infinite intimacy of the Son with the Father. And because he knows the Father perfectly, when he became, t- took our human flesh, he made the Father known. And it's a great theme of John's Gospel. You get it in the middle of the Gospel, in chapter 12, where Jesus cries out, Whoever believes in me, says Jesus, doesn't believe in me only, but in the one who sent me. The one who looks at me is seeing the one who sent me. It's this extraordinary fact that if you'd lived in the right place at the right time, you would have seen the visible, embodied revelation of the invisible God, the Father. It's a wonderful, wonderful truth doesn't it look as though this world is a, a, a fathered world with a good father. We've been remembering uh, D-Day recently, and not very long before then, um, Helmut Thielicker, who was a faithful German uh, pastor, preached some very famous sermons about the Lord's Prayer. He ministered in the city of Stuttgart, at the time of heavy Allied bombing and great distress for the uh, citizens of Stuttgart. And commenting on the beginning of the Lord's Prayer, our Father, Tieleker said this He said, The happy times in the world are like tiny islands in an ocean of blood and tears. The history of the world taken as a whole is a story of war, deeply marked by the hoofprints of the apocalyptic horsemen. It is the story of humanity without a father, or so it seems. And that is what the world seems like, isn't it? Dan and Jodie spoke of experiences in their own life, of the brokenness of the world. Others of us here, if we told our stories, would, would tell stories, acutely personal stories, painful stories of the brokenness of the world of a world which, if you look at it, does not appear to be a world uh, governed by a good, kind, beautiful, loving, heavenly Father. And John's Gospel, perhaps most intensely, says to us, Jesus of Nazareth made God the Father known. Some of you will remember from recent sermons here, I think, in chapter 14 of John's Gospel, verse uh, 8, where Philip, one of the apostles, says, Lord, show us the Father, and we will be satisfied. And Jesus says, don't you know me, Philip, even after I've been among you such a long time? Anyone who has seen me has seen the Father. Jesus is not the Father, but he made the Father known. And if you'd watched him, you'd looked at him, you'd listened to every word he spoke, you'd watched every deed he did, you would have seen the visible revelation in this world of God the Father. Right near the end of his earthly life, the Lord Jesus in chapter 17 says to the Father, I've revealed you, I've revealed you, John 17 verse 6, He says it again later in John 17, the last verse, I've made you known. That's what Jesus did. He made the Father known. It's a wonderful, wonderful thing. But as you read through John's gospel and you see this revelation of the Father, you think this is a wonderful, wonderful thing, but I wasn't there. I wasn't there to see Jesus. I have not seen Jesus. Nobody here has seen Jesus in that uh, incarnate bodily way in which they saw Jesus. And so it raises the question, is it possible for God the Father, the invisible God the Father, to be made known today? Wonderfully, at the very end of his prayer in John 17, Jesus says to the Father, I have made you known to them and will continue to make you known. And so the question is, how does Jesus continue to make God the Father known? Maybe you're here this morning and you're not as yet a Christian believer, and you're thinking, if there is a God who is Father, how is he going to be made known to me? Or you are a Christian believer, and somehow your Christian life feels cold and dead, and you're thinking, I would love God the Father to be made known to me in some fresh way uh, today. And the answer to those questions is by God the Holy Spirit. And so we come from the, the first point that Jesus makes the Father known, to the the main thrust, which is that God the Holy Spirit makes the Son known, and therefore the Father also. So, Jesus says, all that belongs to the Father is Mine. The things of the Father, they're Mine. I'm making them known. And the Spirit is going to take from Me uh, the things uh, which are Mine, which are the things of the Father, and He's going to make them known to you. And so the the point I want us to try to get hold of is that God, the Holy Spirit, takes the things of Jesus, which are the things of the Father, and he makes them known to us, but he does so in a different way from the way in which Jesus made them known. Jesus made the Father known through his incarnate life, his bodily life. You could see him, you could hear him, you could touch him, you could watch him if you'd been there in the right place at the right time. He made the Father known in that historical way. And God the Holy Spirit does not do that. God the Holy Spirit takes the things of Jesus and therefore the things of the Father and he brings them home to our hearts in a deeply wonderful but a different way. At the end of John chapter 15, Jesus says to his apostles, he says, when the advocate, that is that the Holy Spirit comes, whom I'll send you from the Father, the Spirit of truth who goes out from the Father, he, the Holy Spirit, he will testify about me. So Jesus says the Holy Spirit's going to be like a a witness, bearing witness, giving testimony to Jesus. And then he says to his apostles, you also must testify, for you've been with me from the beginning. So Jesus says the Holy Spirit's going to testify, and you, apostles, must testify. To which our question's going to be, well, if the Holy Spirit is God the Holy Spirit, why does He need any help? Why do the apostles need to give testimony? A silly illustration I sometimes use is is of um, a a tennis player. You know, I used to play a bit of tennis, sort of, not terribly well, but reasonably. Supposing somebody said to me, look, um, Johanna Conter, she's she's doing really well, but she had a bit of difficulty with that teenager the other day, next time she plays, um, could you go and join her on court and help her? I mean, it would just be stupid to do that. So it's not that God the Holy Spirit needs somebody like himself, the apostles, to help him. So it's a kind of team effort between the apostles and God the Holy Spirit, and between them they might bear testimony to Jesus. But if you said to Johanna Conte, you haven't haven't got a tennis racket, I think you could use a tennis racket, she would say, thanks, that would be really useful to have a tennis racket, because it's difficult to play tennis without one. And, And so the relationship is like this, God is, God the Holy Spirit is, This is a terrible illustration, isn't it? But I'm doing my best. You you can always tell when a preacher's struggling a bit with an illustration. I'm struggling with this one. God the Holy Spirit is like the tennis player, He's the active agent, He's the one with the power and the skill. And the tennis racket is like the Apostles' testimony, which we have in the Bible. The Apostles had to give historical testimony. That's what we've got in the New Testament. It's the testimony of the Apostles, their teaching. And God the Holy Spirit takes that and uses that to bear testimony to Jesus. And what He does is He takes the things of Jesus and He brings them home to our hearts. I put on the outline, He, he, he gives Jesus. He, you read the Gospels, you read John's Gospel, you read Luke's Gospel, you see this tremendous intimacy between Jesus and and the Holy Spirit. In our first reading at his baptism, John the Baptist sees the Holy Spirit coming down in, in some strange visible form like a dove and remaining on Jesus as a, as a sign that God the Holy Spirit remained on Jesus. In, in John chapter 3, uh, the, 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 <coughs> there's a, something that John the gospel writer says, that, that the the one who is from God, that is Jesus, speaks the words of God. You listen to the words of Jesus, you hear the words of God, because God gives the Spirit to Jesus without limit. Jesus is the man of the Spirit. Jesus is the man uh, of whom the, the Holy Spirit was his constant companion. And right at the end in our third reading, the risen Jesus stands in the midst of his disciples, and he breathes. And in that breathing, he says, receive the Holy Spirit. And it's a a vivid way, the Lord Jesus breathing out, and as he breathes out, as it were, the Spirit, um, who, who has been his constant companion and is, for all eternity, his constant companion, is breathed out on his church. The Holy Spirit is inseparable from Jesus, and therefore inseparable from the Father. He gives Jesus. He gives forgiveness. There's a tremendous connection in John's Gospel between the Holy Spirit and the cross. So, in, in John chapter 7, Jesus speaks of living water, and John comments in chapter 7, verse 39... John says when when Jesus was talking about water, he's talking about the Holy Spirit, whom those who believed in him were going to have later. He hadn't been poured out yet because Jesus was not yet glorified, lifted up, which in John's Gospel supremely refers to the cross, a strange glory, a strange lifting up. And there's this, this tremendous sense that Jesus must first die for sinners, He must die to pay the penalty for sinners. And then when he has died, the Holy Spirit can be poured into the hearts of all whom he makes clean. There is, I think, probably a little hint of this at the crucifixion in John chapter 19, where if you've been a Christian for a while, you'll probably be familiar that on the cross, as Jesus dies he cries out with a loud voice, it is finished. That great triumphant cry, his work of dying to pay the the sins of sinners is finished. It is finished. And then John says, he gave up his spirit. And at one level, that just means he breathed his last breath. After that, if you put a mirror in front of his mouth, as you do, if you see if someone's breathing, (coughs) there would have been no condensation he died. He literally breathed his last breath. <coughs> but probably there's more to it than that. He gave up his spirit. Probably, again, it's that sense. Now it is finished. The work of paying for sins is finished. Now he can breathe out his spirit, and his spirit can be, can indwell the lives of all who will trust in him. He gives Jesus. He gives forgiveness. He gives life. And I suppose when you read through John's Gospel, the indications of the work of the Holy Spirit focus perhaps most intensely on life. In chapter 1, verse 12, one of the opening verses, uh, we read that that those who who, who receive Jesus are going to be given the authority to become children of God. They're made children by adoption and grace. They come into God's family. They can call God Father, and this is the work of the Holy Spirit. At the beginning of chapter 3, Jesus meets Nicodemus, who's a very senior man, a senior religious teacher in the Jewish world of his day, and he says to him, you need to be born from above or born anew by the Spirit. The Holy Spirit is the one who gives that new life. In chapter 4, Jesus meets a woman in Samaria who's experienced a lot of brokenness in her life. And he says, I'm going to give you water, thereby a well. And Jesus says, I can give you a better sort of water. (coughs) You get to John chapter 7, and you discover that that water is speaking of the Spirit. In John chapter 7, Jesus says, come to me and I'll give you water, water of life, life of, of the age to come. If you ask what that life is going to be, <coughs> you discover in chapter 14 and verse 23, Jesus says, we, that is the Father and the Son, God the Father who is the source of all love and goodness and kindness and beauty and grace, and God the Son who makes the Father known, we will come to any man, woman, or child, in whom the Holy Spirit comes, and we will make our home with them. That's marvelous, the wonderful, wonderful truth that any man, woman, or child who belongs to Jesus, the Holy Spirit comes into his or her heart and gives them the life of the Father and the Son. Oh, thank you. (coughs) Thank you, Doug, very much. There we are. We have another half hour now. <coughs> you can blame Doug for that. <coughs> so let me try and pull things together. Jesus makes the Father known. There is a God who is Father, the perfect heavenly Father, who is the source of life and love and grace and goodness and beauty and truth. Jesus made him known. You read through John's Gospel, you see it again and again and again. Jesus made him known, because Jesus lives in intimacy with the Father, as the Son with the Father, he made him known. And the Holy Spirit, God the Holy Spirit, the personal third person of the Holy Trinity, God the Holy Spirit, who is so intimately connected with Jesus from all eternity and all through his earthly ministry, makes Jesus known. He glorifies Jesus. He makes Jesus shine out, and he brings home to the heart of everyone when they first come to trust in Jesus. And then as they go on trusting in Jesus, he brings home to our hearts a conviction of our sins, so that instead of just thinking, well, in theory, I know I'm not perfect, I feel deeply the darkness of my own heart. He brings home to us the reality of Jesus. So it's not just that I see the arguments and I think, well, the evidence looks pretty good and it seems to make sense to me, (coughs) but I feel deeply in my heart and my mind and my will and my conscience that Jesus is true and he brings this home to me. How should we respond to God the Holy Spirit? Well, I want to suggest four responses. First is wonder. There should be in our hearts, and perhaps especially on this Pentecost Sunday, a sense of wonder, just simply to marvel that the triune God, God the Father and God the Son, by God the Holy Spirit, (coughs) can come and live in the heart of a man or woman or child. It's a marvelous, marvelous thing. Second, I want to suggest (coughs) we should question, we should do self-examination each one of us here, either God the Holy Spirit indwells your heart at the deepest level of your being, or he does not. This is not universal. He doesn't indwell every single heart in the world. And so the question is, Am I truly? have I truly trusted in Jesus? If I've truly received Jesus, I've received him by the Holy Spirit. I can't be a Christian without the Holy Spirit. So the question is not, well, I'm a Christian, but I'm not sure if I've got the Holy Spirit. That's a nonsense question. The question is, am I a Christian? It's the same question, do I have the Holy Spirit dwelling within me? It's a really significant question. And for some, there may be a question of some self-examination about that. It's wonderful, but it's very important that it's true. So, marvel, question. And then third, seek His working. When you struggle, as I do, with temptation and the power and the lure and the attractiveness of temptation just feels overwhelming, seek the working of God's Holy Spirit in your heart. Seek a fresh working of His Spirit in your heart. Only He can change you on the inside. The only way in which really deep and lasting change can happen in your heart or mine is by the Holy Spirit. Others can influence us from outside, people we describe as significant others, people who matter to us (coughs) can can affect us from outside, but only the Holy Spirit can change us at the deepest level of our hearts. Uh, Therapy can't do it, mindfulness can't do it, other religions can't do it, childhood discipline is a good thing, but it can't do it, the development of good habits is a good thing, but it can't do it. None of these things can change us at the deepest level of our deepest inwardness. Only the Holy Spirit can do that. So seek his working. When perplexed in a puzzling world, seek the Holy Spirit to make the things of Jesus real. When joyful and thankful. Seek the working of the Holy Spirit in your heart so that your joy and your thankfulness turns to praise. When your heart is breaking with grief, you come face to face with sadness or ugliness or the brokenness of the world. Seek the ministry of the Holy Spirit to bring home to you the reality of Jesus and therefore the reality of the unseen Father, marvel, question, seek, and pray. Pray for Ruby and Rory, that what's been signified in their baptism may true, be proved true in their life, that the Holy Spirit will come upon them and give them new birth. Maybe he already has. Please, God, he already has, but pray that that will be proved true in their lives. Pray for those in your family, or my family, or wider family, who are not following Jesus and don't know the Savior, pray for the work of the Holy Spirit to bring conviction of sin and of the reality and truth of Jesus into their hearts and lives. Well, friends, it's an odd sermon. Um, I blame Steve for asking me to do an odd um, kind of sermon, but it's been a privilege for me to do, and my prayer is that we will go away with a deep sense of wonder, at the truth and the reality of God, the Holy Spirit. As we sit, let's, let's pray. God, our Father, we thank you for God, the Holy Spirit, for his wonderful, gracious work of glorifying Jesus, and taking the things of Jesus and bringing them home to our hearts. And we thank you that those things of Jesus are also the things that come from you, our Heavenly Father. And we pray that in all our different circumstances, our different needs, our different conditions, uh, something of his gracious working would be ours today. We ask it for Jesus' sake. Amen.